just as a note uh, for next Sunday, Easter Sunday, uh, we're going to keep the children in here with us. We think it's important, on, especially on special times like Easter, to keep everyone together. So we'll all be together, but don't worry. They'll have a good time in here, I think, as well. So let's get right into our message this morning because uh, there's a lot there. I think it's one of those messages that reminds me, again, how much the Bible all fits together. So you'll hear from, we're preaching in Deuteronomy this morning, but uh, you'll see from many other books of the Bible how it all ties together and rings true. Uh, the title of the message is Forbidden Worship, and if there's one big idea to remember, it's that our worship must not reverse God's order of things. Okay, Our, our worship must not reverse God's order. And last week we began in Deuteronomy chapter 4, and just as a brief reminder, that's where Moses is continuing his speech to the younger generation of Israelites, the ones who were young at the beginning of the wandering of the desert, as well as some who were born during that time of wandering in the desert. And last week we saw how Moses commanded obedience, ultimately the obedience being to God, because the commands that Moses were giving was giving were from God. So after speaking on the topic of obedience, and he made a strong case for why the Israelites need to remain obedient to God, now Moses moves into an extended portion of this speech on idolatry, which is our study this morning. And Moses will explain to the people why they are not to make idols, and then some of the consequences of idolatry, and finally, what to do if you're guilty of idolatry. So as I read, be aware of those three themes in today's passage. The reasons we must not worship idols, the consequences of worshiping idols, and what to do if we're guilty of worshiping idols. And hopefully, as we study this passage together this morning, we will all find an application in our own lives in regards to this very important topic. It's a longer passage, but I want to read through it so we have the full context, and then we'll break it down a bit. Starting at verse 15 of Deuteronomy chapter 4. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan and that I should not enter the good land unless the, the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land. I must not go over to the Jordan. But you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made for you, and make a carved image the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. 
For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you shall soon, will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over to the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation, and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. So in the beginning of our passage, going back to that verse 15, watch yourselves very carefully. A constant reminder is found throughout Scripture And that constant reminder is that we are supposed to give ourselves constant reminders to serve and obey the Lord. So here Moses says, watch yourselves very carefully. Remember, he had just previously made a dissertation on the importance of obedience. And in light of that, he puts a therefore at the beginning of verse 15. So in light of the importance of obedience, therefore, watch yourselves. Watch yourselves in this particular way. He will go on that you don't fall into idolatry. So now Moses begins to give reasons why idolatry is wrong. Sometimes we're simply told to obey something, even though we might not understand the reasoning. But here Moses is giving us reasons. So Moses begins to explain reasons, and God is reasonable to us. Did you know that? He's reasonable with us. Isaiah 118 says, come, let us reason together. God is a God of reason. So Moses begins to explain why making idols is an affront to God. He starts out saying that, first of all, you do not have a picture or an image of God to make an idol of in the first place. You saw no form. God did not reveal to himself to the people as a creature. They only heard his voice from the midst of the fire. So first off, if we are determined to make an idol of God, whether an image or a statue, the only way we could come up with an idea for what it should look like is in our own mind. And we know that's dangerous, right? Never mind that Michelangelo and others have depicted God in human form. Here we can clearly see this is forbidden. He isn't an old man reaching his finger out, as portrayed in the Sistine Chapel. And where I came from in South Dakota on the Yankton Sioux Reservation, in the middle of the prairie is this structure you can see from many miles away, a 60-foot steeple of a Catholic church. And if you go into that church in a town called Marty, South Dakota... There's a huge mural on the back, and there is God the Father 
depicted as an old man. But Moses says we're not to do that. He has no form. God is spirit. Jesus said so. John 4.24, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Since God has no form, people are not supposed to act corruptly by making a carved image. Now Moses gives several specific examples. Male or female, likenesses of animals, likenesses of birds, fish, and so on. And then he continues to say, not only are you not to make images of things on the earth, but also things above, verse 19, beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. And this is very interesting, the specific examples that Moses gives here. In fact, if you've done any amount of study at all into the creation account in Genesis, some of this language seems familiar. I believe that Moses here is intentionally drawing us back to the creation so that we can make a proper association and understand his reasoning of why we must not engage in making idols or things that represent creation or created things. Created things should never be worshipped over the creator. So Moses says, don't worship the sun and stars because they're created. Sounds like day one and day four of the creation. He says, don't worship fish or birds. Sounds like day five of the creation. He says, don't worship animals or people, male or female. Sounds like day six of creation, right? So in the creation account, we see again and again that God created. He created, theologians use the word ex nihilo, out of nothing. He spoke the world into existence So there's nothing in all of creation that deserves our worship, but only the one who is the creator. Idolatry makes a mockery of God's order of things. Because God was above man and above heaven and earth and all creation. He put man in dominion over all the earth, meaning that animals in all of nature is subject to the care and concern of man. We are supposed to take care of it. We are supposed to subdue it. So what happens when you take the order God set and reverse it? Idolatry is taking that which is supposed to be lower than man, subject to man, under the care and concern of man, and turning it into an object of worship. No one who worships the creation can properly worship the creator at the same time. When we marvel at a massive building or we wonder who the architect was and who the builders were. When we experience a well-planned community where the roads and traffic and the utilities and the parks, everything is ordered, everything's beautiful, everything works well, we realize there's a talented, usually not just one person, but a team of people who oversee all of that and designed it and made it all work so well. And when we see a beautiful garden, we, see, we give the gardener credit for her understanding of plant life and her work that made it so beautiful. When we see other artistic expressions, we give credit to the artist. If we made out that the building was greater than its architect, or the community was greater than the overseers, or the garden was greater than the gardener, or the art was greater than the artist, then we diminish the talent and the hard work and the creativity of those responsible for the beauty we live with. 
and to place any of God's creation on a pedestal to worship it, to make it a thing of wonder rather than the God who spoke it into existence. That is an affront to God, an insult. It is cosmic treason to make out that the creation itself deserves any kind of worship rather than the creation. And according to Scripture, this really ends up being the great charge against mankind. In Romans chapter 1, Paul writes about that which is bringing God's wrath on the world. Because of the unrighteousness of the world, Paul writes, God is revealing his wrath. And what is the culmination of all the sins that bring God's wrath? Idolatry. Let's look at Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is what ultimately brings God's wrath on the sinful that they have ignored him, but chosen to worship his creation. There's no excuse. Nature cries out to us that there's a creator. But mankind gives no thanks to the creator or any honor. They exchange the glory of God for images. This is the reversal of God's proper order of things. He is on top, man under him, creation under man, and idolatry reverses this. They take the lowest thing and make it the highest thing. The created things become the objects of worship rather than the creator. Not only does man place nature above man, it places nature above God. And sometimes the idolater might claim, well, I am worshiping God because I'm worshiping the creation he created, and so I'm worshiping him. But that cannot be true. Why? Because the clear commands of Scripture tell us so. If God is God and his word tells us not to worship his creation, then we ought not to worship it. When, when I come home and one of my daughters has made a, a picture that she's showing me, I don't praise the picture. I praise the girl, right? I say, great job to her, not to the picture. And anyone creative will tell you, if they, if they were willing to admit it, that they actually want to be recognized for their work. Not that they're all narcissists or something, but they, they want someone to recognize that they put effort in, that they had talent. So many artists end up frustrated because their work never gets noticed. Some people take it for granted. The artists in the family, uh, when, if you are an artist, you know what I'm talking about probably, then they're often expected to do some free work for family or friends, right? And this is what's called presumption, right? You are my family member or friend. You have this talent. I hope you'll use it to benefit me. Or the mechanic in the family who's expected to fix everyone's stuff just for the privilege of helping, right? We, oh, well, I'll, give, I'll buy you pizza. You know? 
We can understand this when we're the one being presumed upon, but we don't understand it as well when we're the one being presumptuous. If humans who ultimately are created can be frustrated about presumptuousness, how much more must it frustrate God when we presume upon him? We presume he needs our help. Or we presume that he would be happy to have us worship his creation. Or we presume upon his kindness, mercy, and grace. Let us not be presumptuous people. Not with each other, of course, but certainly not with God. The ultimate slap in the face to God is that we think he has a face to slap. Or that we think we know better than he does about how we are to go about worshiping him. Now, moving further into our passage, Moses gives further reason why these people, the Israelites, are not to make idols. Verse 20, But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. Iron furnace is a metaphor there. Um, It just means they were in a very difficult place. Egypt, like many pagan nations, was filled with false gods. They worshipped just about everything you could think of. In fact, there were many temples throughout Egypt to various animals who were worshipped as God. It was kind of like going to the zoo, okay? So you, you went there, and except you worshipped the animals. Hopefully you don't do that when you go to the zoo. So maybe one temple has a bull. And it would always be a firstborn bull, by the way. You would go to see the bull, you'd lay down a gift of food or money, and you'd bow down to it, supposedly some favor that that God would do for you. It was always the firstborn. And this is important to understand, because when God finally showed his power over all the gods, small g, of Egypt, it included the death of the firstborn, not only of the people, but of the livestock. You can see that in Exodus twelve twenty nine. So not only did the pagan Egyptians wake up to the death of their firstborn, and Scripture does not specify, by the way, that it was only firstborn children. It's kind of in our mind because of a movie we saw. The firstborn could be a grown-up as well. It wasn't only the firstborn of people, but on that day you can imagine a distraught mother or father going to the temple of their animal deity they were accustomed to worship, to appeal to for good luck and fortune because they want their child back And they arrive at the temple finding that animal that represented their God dead as well. And so God had said to Moses in Exodus 7, 5, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. You see, God is never going to tolerate forever the idolatry of created men who worship created things. He is forbearing. He does have patience. But there's a time where his patience ends. He brought them out of Egypt in a way that showed his intolerance towards idol worship. Twenty times in Deuteronomy, the people are reminded that God took them out of Egypt. They were to leave behind the evil they encountered there, primarily the worship of idols. Continuing on in verse 21, Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord 
your God is giving you for an inheritance, for I must die in this land. I must not go over to the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. This is the third time, if you've been to church the last couple months, the third time Moses has brought this up in this same speech. Now, some people say, well, he's just obsessing over that. What's his problem? But if we read between the lines, I think we could safely say that Moses had a purpose in this. He wanted the people to learn something from his own experience. Wanting others to learn from our mistakes is not wrong. Now, we can go to extremes on this. We have to be careful. We don't want to come across as a martyr, and we also don't want to come across as though our lives never had difficulties or trials. I've had people tell me that. I don't believe them. Moses clearly feels a deep sense of grief over the consequences of his failure. And we discussed this already, so I won't rehash all of that. You can go back and listen to that sermon if you like. He has sorrow over it. But he's also holding it out as a lesson and as a warning to others. Verse 23, Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you and make a carved image the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. Now, there's one more reason for not creating idols implied here, and that is a very logical one. If you made it with your own hands, how can it be helpful to you? This may seem very logical, but throughout human history, people have been doing this. Both Jeremiah and Isaiah outright mocked those who make idols. I'll give you a few examples. Jeremiah 10.3, For the customs of the people are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. And they cannot speak. They have to be carried. They cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them. They cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. Isaiah said in Isaiah 46, verse 6 and 7, Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it on their, to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in their place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. And again in Isaiah 41, 6-7, Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. And he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, It is good. And they strengthen it with nails so it cannot be moved. And I'm not going to read it right now, but also in Isaiah 44, there's a longer passage where he just outright mocks the concept of idol worship. That's a pretty fair reason, wouldn't you say, why we shouldn't worship idols? If you made it with your own hands, what good can it do? By the way, that, that's not necessarily foreign to our world today. Um, there's a lot of restaurants that are in our area. You go in, someone pointed out to me a couple months ago, there's idols there in the restaurant. Right, Wyatt? <laughs> so, and sometimes we make man-made, created things into idols as well, right? We marvel at them and we say, wow. Let's move on. Verse 24, the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. 
Now, jealous here is in the healthy sense, not the sense that you probably normally hear it. Like if you hear of a jealous husband, a lot of times that's in a very negative connotation. God does not put up with worship of anything but him. His wrath will destroy the wicked. His power is great. The psalmist wrote, the mountains melt like wax before the presence of the Lord. Don't be caught up in his wrath. Don't worship idols. Because now we will begin to see the consequences of disobedience in this arena. The consequences are death, banishment, and destruction. And the penalties of disobedience are very grave, very sad, very scary. When we get to chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, by the way, we're going to see those curses laid out. They are very graphic, very frightening. In that chapter, we see the blessing of being faithful and the curses of disobedience. Guess what? The blessings take about 14 verses. The curses take 54 verses. The cost of disobedience is very grave indeed. Even to the point of hunger where it says in Deuteronomy chapter 28 that a man would eat the flesh of his own children and then be so greedy he wouldn't even share it with others. Or a mother would even eat from her afterbirth secretly because she lacks everything. Deuteronomy 28, 56 and 57. Is that sobering? Deuteronomy 4.25, continuing on, when, you're fa- when you father children and your children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there will, you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. Now here is irony. This passage drips with irony. And, and if you don't see it right off, I'm going to point it out. If you act corruptly by making a carved image, you will perish, be destroyed, and scattered. And when you're scattered, it will be to places where idol worship is the way of life, and there you will serve gods of wood and stone. Isn't it interesting that the Bible often tells us the consequences of our sin is that we'll do more sin? Really is is the same thing, isn't it? Paul was getting at it in Romans 1. They worshiped and served the creature, remember, rather than the creator. Let's look at it again, starting at Romans 1.21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So what was the consequence? Therefore, God gave them up in their lusts of their heart to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to their dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind 
to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The sin was exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, and the consequences of that sin was more sin. The wrath of God revealed is evident in the depravity we see around us today in the world. And so right now, a hot topic has been the Parents' Parents Rights Bill in education in Florida. And all over the country, they're talking about this. And reasonable people are saying, well, what's wrong with protecting kindergartners to third graders from these conversations? How could anyone be this sick and depraved? Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that were contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. By the way, I'm reading this a second time, not because I forgot I just read it. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they do not only do them, but give approval to those who do them. Do you wonder why in our world today people would think that it's not all right for a parent to have the right to say no to their child in kindergarten to third grade being taught immoral things. Do you understand why people fight against that kind of morality? Romans 1 answers it. So is all hopeless then? Well, no. Not for everyone. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Thankfully, Paul's letter to the Romans doesn't end at chapter 1. It goes on to explain that the gospel, the good news about salvation in Jesus Christ, in no no other name, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And in our passage this morning, Moses also gives a glimmer of hope to Israel because when they would eventually fall, do you notice his language is when you'll do this, not if, When they will fall into the sin of idolatry, if they remembered this teaching, they had a way out. If they practiced idolatry and were scattered among the nations and began to realize they needed a way out, then Moses closed this little part with some guidance. 
Verse 29, but from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. So long as we feel remorse of sin and a willingness to repent and turn back to God, he will welcome us back. And I'm going to close with the lyrics of a song that this reminded me of. And if I highly recommend, if you have a music streaming service, to find this and listen from David Phelps' album called Hymnal. It's a song called The Matchless Grace. And uh, he belts it out pretty good. If you don't know who David Phelps is, he used to sing with the Gathers. But here's the lyrics of it. I've got them from the screen. Oh, the matchless grace of Jesus, that he knows my secret thoughts. Yet in mercy offers pardon for crimes my own hands have wrought. Matchless grace none can compare. May this be the crown I wear. Blessed assurance on my face, evidence of matchless grace. Oh, the matchless grace of Jesus, how can he forgive my past? Past Breaking chains of sin's transgressions, praise his name, I'm free at last. Oh, the matchless grace of Jesus, even in death I'm not alone. Crossing Jordan, hear him saying, well done, my child, welcome home. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word today, which is absolutely sobering, staggering, and even frightening, Lord, for those who go falling away and worshiping idols and and disobeying your word. And yet, at the same time, Lord, we come out to the end and we're reminded of that matchless grace of Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would consider these words this morning. The answer to the reason for all the depravity of the world is found in your word. We can sit and try to figure it out figure out the psychology of it, Lord, you've answered it already. It's idolatry. It's not recognizing you as the creator and giving you proper respect that is due to the holy God that you are. Thrice holy, 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 holy. And Lord, when your creatures take other things that you've created and prop them up and make them objects of worship, It is only fair that your wrath would come upon mankind. And Lord, the wrath that you reveal is often in the unbridled sin of the sinful. That you allow them and give them over to those passions. Lord, you've called some of us out of that. Your matchless grace that through your Holy Spirit and your word, you reached into our lives with the gospel of Jesus Christ and you snatched us out of that for your glory. So Lord, at the same time as we are sobered by these words this morning and the warnings 
Let them be clear to us. Let us not leave this place without an excitement. If we are in Christ, to know that we have been saved from this life. And that you set us on a new course. Lord, as we prepare for this coming weekend, Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday, may we be attentive to those around us who are in need of your grace so badly. And may we be willing to be obedient to you to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them so that they may also experience that matchless grace of Jesus. Lord, do it in our hearts. Revive us, Lord, so that we can expand your kingdom around us and bring you into those dark places in the world around us. And Lord, when people are asking us in the conversations, how could it have gotten this far? May we be able to point them to Scripture and say it's not that far that Jesus didn't know about it ahead of time. And yet, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, the matchless grace of Jesus. Matchless grace, how can it be? Thank you, Lord. May we live it out with great passion and energy. In Jesus' name, amen.